So we're in chapter 3, verses 21 to 30. I've got them on the screen. You can follow along your Bible. Now, I don't usually use the New Living Translation, but I decided today that I would because I think it just speaks in a language in this passage that's very clear and relatable and communicates the point. So this is the New Living Translation. I'll read it for you. You can follow along. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with Him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sins. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed His life Shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus Christ. Can we boast then? That we've done anything to be accepted by God? No. Because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith. And not by obeying the law. After all, is God the God of Jews only? Isn't he also the God of Gentiles? Of course he is. There is only one God. And he makes people right with himself only by faith. Whether they're Jews Gentiles. And that's the passage. I love that passage. And when I read that, I almost feel like Paul's standing up there and he can do this like mic drop. He goes, oh, there you go. And he can walk off, right? So maybe I should just close and pray. We'll just leave the scripture where it is. No, I won't do that. I'm going to elaborate on it some. But I think this passage really gives us a big picture. It says, look, this is the good news. This is the gospel right here. It tells us what the problem is, and it tells us what the solution is. And that's where we're headed this morning, is to look at the problem and the solution. So to understand the gospel, we need to understand the problem. We need to understand the problem. And you go, okay, yeah, the problem, but sometimes we misunderstand what the problem is in our lives in the world. We misunderstand what it is, and if we don't understand what the problem is, we can't really come to the right solution, can we? I have some pictures here of something that's going on in my house currently. This, I might let me take some explanation on this picture. So we bought this house about four and a half years ago and moved into it. And in the basement, there seemed to be this little gap between the baseboard trim and the floor. You can kind of see it there. I put some Legos in there just to give you a little bit of scale. I know that can be hard to see. And it was... It's a little gap, and some places just maybe half an inch, three quarters of an inch, and they're like, hmm, something's going on there. I 
can't remember what it was, but the previous owner was like, oh yeah, it's kind of always been that way, blah, 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 and it's fine. And it, it may have gotten a little bit worse, but there was this one place where clearly this had happened, whatever was going on, and the people finished the basement, and they put everything down, and they, they could, and there was one place kind of right by this, to walk out basement, there's this exit door, and the, a, a previous owner put down this giant piece of stone as kind of like the walk-off mat. It's like, oh, nice, this piece of stone, and kind of, you know, it's like, oh, that looks great. Well, I got six kids, and between all of us going on all there, that stone cracked. And you're like, ah, oh, something is going on underneath here. There's a little picture of that area. I'm not sure if you can really tell what's going on. But there's a three-inch difference in that location between where the slab should be and where it is. And so as I kind of looked at it, I really discovered, oh, yeah, of course. Like, the, the ground is sort of settled underneath it, and the slab is sunk. And that's the problem. And so i got to get it fixed, and I'm going to get it fixed, and I'm going to get a good deal with it fixed. And so I'm really excited it's going to happen here in a couple of weeks. But I had to understand what the problem was. See, a couple of owners ago, when they put down that piece of stone, maybe they didn't understand what the problem was. And they just said, oh, if I could just sort of make this little flat area, everything would be fine. Or you could have approached us and said, oh, well, if we just put some more layers of carpet down on top of the other carpet, the drop slab would just sort of fill up and everything would be fine. You have to understand what the problem is or you're not going to be able to fix it. Thankfully, I understand what the problem is, and I'm going to get it fixed. And so the same is true in the world. We have to understand what the problem is. What is our standing? What is going on? If we don't understand what it is, we can't get to the solution. So as we need to understand the problem, we need to understand this, that God is righteous. Paul says it right there in verse 23. He says, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Well, what is God's glorious standard? Is it pretty good? No, it's perfection. Why? Because God himself is perfect. Perfect. God is righteous. God is holy. What does righteous mean? It means to be right. A couple of verses in the Bible that explain that. Psalm eleven seven says, The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. God equals righteousness. Later, or earlier in Leviticus, God just says it. I am holy. Does it get any more succinct than that? God is holy. God is perfect. And he has that standard for us. That glorious standard of perfection. Now, if we think about this, we say, yeah, he has to be. He has to be perfect. He has to be righteous. Because if he's not righteous, then he's not God. By definition, that's what it takes to be God. See, if God is the creator of the universe, and he created the universe around him, and he created the universe for him, and he set up all the rules for it, it kind of wouldn't make sense if he made this universe where he broke the rules. There would be problems with it, and there's not. The rules of the universe were created by God, and he's a perfect God. He is righteous. And I think realistically... Don't you want God to be perfect? And we do want God to be perfect, right? We all want perfection. We think about, oh man, if I could just have the perfect day, or I could have the perfect event, man, I really hope that going to play Frisbee this afternoon, it's just going to be, the weather's just going to be perfect, and then I catch the long ball for the touchdown, or whatever. We always live for perfection. On Wednesday night at Launchpad, we had this great discussion about that, right? 
We talk about happiness and joy and what are we going after? And we go, oh, we really just want things to be perfect, but it's never perfect. But we have that desire. There is something that's perfect. God. God is perfect. I even think the term if you say, oh, he's an imperfect God, that would be an oxymoron. Like military intelligence, right? <laughs> imperfect God, it's not, it doesn't work. So in addition to God being right and God being perfect, God is just. Verse 26, God himself is fair and just. Paul says it right there. What does it mean to be fair and just? Well, we all kind of know what that makes sense. God is completely fair and completely just. He's not mostly just. He's not just to his buddies. Oh, if you're being good with God, he's just to you. And if you're bad with God, he's not just. No, he's perfectly just. He's perfectly fair. When we understand this as a concept, we think about the legal system, don't we? We've got judges, and if the judge knows somebody in the case or has some connection in the case, they do what? They recuse themselves. They step out. They say, I can't judge. I can't be a judge. I can't be impartial. I can't be fair. They step out of that. Those of you who have kids and your kids are in sports, you understand why when you go to a game and the ref doesn't show up, they don't ask you to ref your kid's game. I wouldn't be fair. I'd be like, no, he didn't step out. That was a touchdown. <laughs> in Romans chapter 2, we went over this a couple weeks ago. Paul says, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. Jew first and also the Greek. Why? Because God shows no partiality. None. And I ask that question again. Would you want it to be otherwise? We want God to be perfect. Don't we want God to be just? Remember, I had the opportunity to share the gospel with a young woman several years ago. We sat down and we went through it. And one of her big hang-ups was... It just doesn't seem right that people have done really terrible stuff to me and that all they would have to do is ask God for forgiveness and he would forgive them. She was really hung up on the idea of justice. And I get it. We all want justice. But instead of looking at other people, we got to turn around and look at ourselves and say, oh, we want justice, but I kind of need justice on myself too. See, if God is not just, well, again, it's kind of not oxymoron. He's not God. He's not just. He's not God. I love this quote. We probably understand this. Benjamin Franklin said, It's better 100 guilty persons should escape than one innocent person should suffer. And in some ways, our legal system in the United States is built on that concept, isn't it? Right? Yeah, well, 100 guilty people should escape and one person should suffer. That's kind of how we have it built and that's how it works for humans, but that's not perfect justice, is it? Perfect justice is that no guilty person escapes and no innocent person suffers, right? And so now we look back at God. If God is perfect and God is just, if God can't do this in the universe he's created, then he's created something outside his power. We know that's not the case, because he's God, by definition. I mean, really, do you want a God who lets the guilty go unpunished? I don't. I want God to punish all the guilty people. Just like that young woman. I go, yeah, there should be punishment. There should be justice. And there will be. And so now, you might be asking this question. Real quick here. The, you say, the problem. The problem is that God is righteous. And the problem is that God is just. What is Greg talking about? That doesn't seem like a problem. 
Those seem like good things. God is righteous? That's not bad. No, that's not the point. But for those things to be true, what else do we know is true? You know that we are not righteous. And so we have to face justice. Paul says it in verse 23. Everyone has sinned. Everyone. There's no exception. Every single person has sinned. It doesn't matter who you are. Whether you're that stone-cold atheist, or you're the white-hot religious zealot, I think my pictures there, I thought those were kind of funny. Most of us are probably somewhere between those two people. We're all included. Every single one of us is wicked. Everyone has sinned. It doesn't matter whether you're the Jew, you think they know God, and are totally religious, or the Gentile, who's just a total pagan atheist, whatever. It doesn't matter. Every single one of us has sinned. Every single one of us must face justice. And that's the problem. The problem is that God has set up the standard of perfection because He is perfect. It's natural. It's logical. It's desirable. And we don't need that standard, do we? So as a result, we have to face justice. Now, we'll see if I can kind of click through this here. I came up with a diagram of what I think is going on. I need some help there. There we go. So the first thing, we have God. And God is just, right? God is just. We understand that, and we said, I want that. I want a just God because I want the guilty to go and be punished. But the reality is, I'm not righteous. God is righteous, and I'm not. God is perfect, but I am not. Because I'm not, the reality is, I have to face God, who is just. I'm not righteous, and it comes right back. I have to meet God, and the result of that is I have to face justice. And to face justice means I have punishment. That's what it means. This is a cycle of justice. We all want this except when it comes to our own lives, and yet we can't escape it. And that is the problem. This is the problem every single one of us faces. But I love in Romans 3, Paul doesn't stop with the problem. He gives us the solution. God gives us the solution. We're trapped in the cycle, and God gives us the solution. Now, if it was up to us, there would be some way we could kind of work out of that cycle. I so appreciate what Brad shared last week about his example of being at school and blowing off the school exams and then desiring extra credit. I didn't have that problem. I was a good student. I went to all my classes and did all my work. <laughs> it's good that there's different people here. <laughs> but I love that example because it's true. And we go, oh, I can just sort of blow this off. And I blow it off. And then, oh man, maybe there's some other way I can get around and kind of avoid the justice. There's no extra credit to pass the course. We don't have to get that in life. That's going to be the problem. And the solution needs to be to God is Jesus Christ. And Paul says it right there. He says, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, period. Not ands or if. Placing our faith in Jesus Christ, period. He doesn't say, oh yeah, we're working to avoid that cycle. Oh, you just do some work and you kind of get some extra credit. You get by it. No, he goes on. Paul says, God in his grace 
freely makes us right in the sight. He did this through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalty of our sin. He freed us from that problem, the penalty of our sin. God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life. That's it. There's no more. I'm allowing Christ to satisfy the penalty in my place. Now, I mentioned earlier, I'm using the NLT. You go back to a version like the ESV, I think I have it here, or the NAS or the NIV, and if you don't know what all those acronyms are, that's totally okay, but other versions translate the words differently, and they say this, Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So that word, propitiation. How many of you used that in a conversation this week? No, 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 no. Not this week. Maybe someone was doing the New York Times crossword. They got that one then this week. That's it. Well, what does it mean? What is the propitiation? Well, it's a big word, and it just means the object that creates reconciliation. Jesus, God put forward, is the object that creates reconciliation. Jesus is what makes us right with God. That's what it means. And so this gets us a new cycle. And so we go back to our cycle here. We understand this and we're trapped in this, but there's something that happens. And that's that Jesus is righteous. I'm not righteous, but hey, there is someone who is righteous, and that's Jesus. Because he's righteous, he can face on my behalf justice. He can go to God and right away. He's righteous. He's good. And the result of that is to be right with God. Get to be right with God. So there is a way to get out of that cycle, but it doesn't have anything to do with anything I do. There's only one thing I do. One thing, and it's this. There's a decision. There's a decision that has to be made. That's it. It's not a good work. It's not penance. It's not any of these other things. It's a decision. A decision point. And that decision is, I go, I'm not righteous, but Jesus is. So either I can face it, or he can face it on my behalf. Which will it be? I get to choose. Now, when you think about decisions in life, they're kind of challenging, aren't they? Decisions are challenging because you don't really know what's going to happen. You don't really know what's going to happen. What's really cool about this decision is we, we do get to see what happens in life. See, I think about one of my favorite stories in my life, and I would just share this with you this morning, is that you are sitting in this space today because a young man, sometime about 1995, decided he was going to take a road trip. I'll explain what I mean. There was this young man, he graduated from university with a degree in architecture in Louisiana, and he said, you know what? I just want to see the United States. I'd like to go see the United States. So he got in his car, and he headed west. He was driving west, he made it to Colorado Springs. When he made it to Colorado Springs, his car broke. As his car broke down, he was like, man, well, that's kind of a bummer. And he didn't know what to do. He said, well, this is a really nice place. I think I'll stay here. And he went out and he found a job at an architecture firm. And he went to work. Well, he was a believer and he wanted to get involved in church and he really liked youth. And he said, I'm going to go get involved with a youth group at a local church. So he went to a local church and got involved in the youth group. That's where I met him. I was a senior in high school. I was headed also to architecture school in a year, and I wanted to get to know this guy, and so I did. We became friends, and it's like really neat. Then I went off to school. 
And then four years later, I called him up and he said, hey, can you come work with me in Denver? He moved to Denver at the time and he got me a job. We've never gotten a job without him. And he would take a, a flyer off a guy with a little four-year degree who's not from around there, right? So I got this job. I worked for a year. I got married and went off to graduate school. But as I was working that year, I ended up getting to know some other people at that firm. And there was another man who worked there, and I got to know him and worked for him, and he liked me, and he wrote a recommendation for graduate school for me. And he showed me that recommendation, and in that recommendation, he said, hey, if Greg ever moves back to Denver, I hope he will come back and work for me. So a couple years go by, I finished my graduate degree, and I feel like, oh, God's calling me back to Colorado, God's coming back here, hopefully, to we'll plant the Firehouse Church, and I spent five months looking for a job. And of course, I contacted this guy at the beginning, he said, I don't think we really have a job. I had 20 interviews. Nobody wanted to hire me. And I was like, well, oh, I worked at this other firm in Fort Collins, and they kind of wanted to hire me, so I was thinking I was going to do that. And at the last minute, this friend calls up, and he says, I think we got a job for you. And he hired me. They hired me. And so I went to work at this firm here in Denver. And he's helped plant this church, and we got it going. And at some point, the pastors walked me into this building and said, you think we can have our church here? I don't know if you all have seen the pictures that are in my office there, but it was a pile of bricks. And I literally laughed out loud and said, there's no way we could do this. And I said, well, it's going to be expensive. We'll see what the Lord could do. And I went back to this firm that I worked for. I remember this guy that helped get me the job, and he went on to do something else. And so I was working at this firm, and the owners of this firm were believers. And I said, hey, we want to do this. And he said, all right, we'll cut the rate down. We'll take a loss on doing the project so you can get the church in there. And so we did the project. We created this building. And now we have this building. We designed it, and here it is. And so you are sitting here in this space today, in part because one guy decided in 1995 to take a road trip. So we don't understand what decisions make. So every decision you make, you don't know what's going to happen. Except the decision for salvation. Paul tells us we get to see it. I love it. There's promises. There are promises for this decision. We have the promise of eternal life. In John 5, 24, Jesus himself says, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. We have a promise. You make this decision. You come to this decision point. You say, it's either going to be me or him. Well, we know what it's going to be if we choose him. We also have another scripture John 3.16 God so loved the world He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's an absolute. It's a promise. We see it in 1 John as well. God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. We're promised eternal life. We're also promised freedom. We're promised freedom from the penalty of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There is a promise. We are set free. We are also set free from bondage to religion and good works. And that idea that we can somehow work our way out of that cycle. Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom. Freedom from 
religion. That Christ has set us free. Stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by that yoke of slavery. And so when you think about this decision, think about that decision point on that diagram. What is that decision? It's very simple. Will you take the penalty for your sin? Or will you let Christ take the penalty for your sin? It's one or the other. There's no other options. And so I'd ask you this morning, wherever you're at, if you reach that decision point, maybe you've been around church a long time in your life, and you go, oh, yeah, 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 I've been going to church. Well, have you ever made that decision? Have you ever made that decision? If you have a chance to today, I'd always love to talk to you more about it, if you would. And so we see there's a problem, and we see there's a solution, but there's more in this passage, isn't there, than just that. I think it's so neat is that Paul addresses objections. He gives us the solution, and the solution addresses objections. I think it's really cool. I think Christianity and this faith, the gospel, is really the only worldview that welcomes questions, that welcomes doubts, that welcomes skepticism. You go to other places, and they go, no, 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 don't ask those difficult questions. It's okay. It's okay to approach this with skepticism. I think there's some objections that are even addressed right here in the passage. The first one is that objection of, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in God. Maybe some of you even have that objection. Verse 30 says, there's only one God and he makes people right with him, with himself, only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. You could really read this as, he makes people right with himself, whether they are religious people or non-religious people. Kind of covers everybody. There's one God. And I can understand holding this objection of I don't believe in God. I understand it. It's a difficult concept in some ways, but let me ask this. Does the order of the universe depend upon your belief in God? I don't mean to be snarky or rude about it, but let's just be honest. Does my belief about a matter change the facts of the matter? It does not. It does not. So get honest with yourself and it says, you know, are you saying, I don't believe in God or are you saying, I don't want to believe in God? And maybe you've got some legitimate doubts and again, they're welcome and bring them and I'd love to talk to you, Brad would as well. Many people, many of us, just don't want to believe in God. So to be honest about that, it's not I don't believe in God, it's I don't want to believe in God. And yet, wanting to believe in God or not wanting to believe in God doesn't affect the reality whether there is God, does there? We don't get to get to the end and stand before God and say, oh, well, I didn't believe in you, so I'm exempt from judgment. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. The second objection I think we see in this passage is, I don't believe in the gospel. I can just be good and religious. Paul says in verses 27 and 28, he says, our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It's not based on being good. It's not based on being religious. It is based on faith. I love that word, acquittal. The courtroom has been on my mind. It was really fun this week. My oldest son got to do a mock trial. Did anyone ever do a mock trial in here? Do you know what that is? I didn't even know what it was. But basically, they prepare cases and arguments. We went down to a federal court sat in a courtroom with a real judge, and this judge is doing this with his students, and it gives him the opportunity to walk through the real 
environment of trial. Oh, it was super cool. Really enjoyed it. And really, in our culture, we're really obsessed with courtrooms, aren't we? Same all the television shows and the movies and all these things that are associated. We went out and watched To Kill a Mockingbird because we were just really excited about the courtroom. And of course, you could just pick any week. I could give this message probably any week or any month, and I could just pick some court case out of the headlines. And so this week, I picked Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby was convicted this week of some pretty terrible crimes. Bill Cosby was found guilty. Now, maybe I was just interested in that because when I was growing up, I thought Bill Cosby was a really funny guy. I really liked a lot of his comedy. And the Cosby show I found to be very wholesome and very entertaining. And I liked it and I watched it and I enjoyed it. And I know he was an advocate for positive change in the black community. But did any of that matter when it came to this trial? To whether he was guilty or innocent? Oh, Bill Cosby's a funny guy, so he's not guilty. No? Well, the Cosby show was a pretty good show. No? He was a really good guy in the community. No? He's guilty. He's guilty. His good works could not erase his crimes, and in the same way, goodness or religiosity have no bearing upon the cycle of justice. Good deeds are not that propitiation. They're not the object that reconciles us to God. Only Jesus Christ is. Only Jesus Christ is. The third objection we see in this passage is the idea of, I don't believe that everybody has a fair chance. I don't believe everybody has a fair chance. It's kind of that deep, dark jungle. Oh, and maybe you've said this, and maybe you have this doubt. That's fine. Oh, well, what about those people who are in the deep, dark jungles who never hear about Jesus? What about them? I understand that. Paul says God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, which would be kind of like being in a deep, dark jungle, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. And so really think about this. If you say some don't have a chance to believe, what are you really saying? What are you saying about God? You're saying God's not just. Do you believe God's not just? I showed that God is just. We saw that's not true, so let's go back to our cycle here. Just so we can see this picture. And there's judgment. So will anybody end up facing justice and punishment who doesn't deserve it? You see, every single person does. Every single one of us. Everyone has sinned. Everyone will be there. And yet there's a limit. And so I like to think about it this way. I say, hmm, will anybody suffer the consequences of judgment unfairly? No. Will anybody be made right with God without choosing Jesus Christ? No. I understand it's tough to see the answer to that in our human eyes and say, well, what about those people who haven't heard? What about that? And there's a lot of depth to that. And I'll let Brad explain that next week. <laughs> no, there's not enough time to really go into the details of all of that today, but I think there's one foundational thing. One foundational thing. And it's this. Do you believe that God is just and fair? Is God just and fair or not? He says that he is. The Bible tells us that he is. It makes sense that he is. 
Do you believe that God is fair and just? If you believe that, there's going to be nobody in hell who doesn't deserve to be there, and there's going to be nobody in heaven who doesn't deserve to be there. And he said, this is the way. This is the way. And I think ultimately we can make this argument and say, oh, what about those who haven't heard? I want to turn around back to you and say, what about you? You've heard. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Paul says this, people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Do you believe that? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Are you right with God? Have you acknowledged the problem, the real problem that's going on? And have you acknowledged the only solution that's there? And have you accepted it? Have you come to that decision point and received it? I hope you take that away today. I'll pray and we'll close. Yeah, God. Recognize that we're bunch of really bad sinners. God, I think that Paul spells it out very clearly that everyone is sin. Everyone. That includes me and everybody else in all places, in all times. And God, we understand that nothing that we can do that can be good can erase the sin that we've done. Justice has to be served. Thank you for making a way. Thank you for making a way by sending Christ to die in our place to take the penalty of our sins. God, thank you that we don't have to work to achieve that salvation. All we have to do is decide. God, it's as simple as saying, I receive that free gift. Lord, we're going to let Jesus take the justice in my place. It's so amazing, God. God, as you think back to singing this morning, make that be our magnificent obsession. There's so many other things that can cloud our mind and our time and our judgment. Help us to get a laser focus on the gospel. Help us to understand the problem. Help us to rejoice in grace and solution. Thank you that you call us to have doubts and address those and seek answers. God, I thank you that in my life, of all the questions I've asked or been asked, 